Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For the last couple of months, there's been constant Me Too revelations in India. Yesterday, the head of Walmart's Indian venture Flipkart Group resigned. Journalist-turned-politician MJ Akbar received 10 complaints, including a business editor at NPR and resigned his post as Minister of State for External Affairs. There was the leader of the Congress Party's student wing who stepped down after he was accused. There's comedians, actors, TV presenters, all facing accusations in India. With me is Shweta Singh, associate professor at Loyola University's School of Social Work, where she focuses on global feminism, South Asia, women in leadership, and diversity. Shweta hosts the WLUW radio show Global Desi World and Women, Sundays at 2. Nice to see you, Shweta. Always nice to see you, Jerome. Um, Tell me, this is um, a pretty wild thing that's going on in India. So many accusations, so many people. Um, Where does this really come from? Where is the genesis of all this? So, um, Jerome, I think there are two components to this. One is the visibility of it right now, the Me Too India movement. That is definitely an offshoot of the Me Too movement that owes its origins, obviously, to the U.S. And that is why I think it shares some parallels with the Me Too movement here. Uh, but then there's the other part of it, which is in India, genetic to India, is the whole history of how rape and sexual abuse and violence and stalking and um, sexual harassment at work, especially, have been highlighted um, almost since 1997. That's when it started. Explain 1997 and how this b- b- was a thing then. So, uh, you know... It, In the activist world within India, within South Asia or the South Asian or Asian feminisms, it's always been a case of trying to get people making feminism relevant. It's never been relevant. So a lot of writing, you know, coming out in like Economic Political Weekly and all the articles in there, even the mainstream newspapers are trying to go back to the fact that women have always talked about that there is rape happening, there's violence and harassment happening at workplaces. But it's never been mainstream because our whole ideology has been let's try and get more women into workspaces or give them education. But in 1997, there's this activist, a social worker. uh, Her name was Bhavri Devi. She's in Rajasthan, a state which is known for some of the components of traditionalism that have affected women. And she tried to prevent a child marriage from happening. And as a consequence of that, the man whose daughter was getting married, he and some of his kinsmen attacked her and raped her in front of her husband. So she tried to file a complaint and that whole history happened. But then uh, finally, she actually won the case. The Vishaka guidelines are the first step that the government took openly to prevent sexual harassment at workspaces. And we actually think in activism terms in our South Asian feminist context, we owe it to her as the beginning of how work resulted in her being uh, sexually violated. Uh, that sounds like the first case of real accountability. Uh, is that still? Is that just the perennial issue, though? Accountability—it's just so hard to get. And now there seems to be kind of rapid accountability with public opinion and public pressure. Oh yeah. So, so you know, it's I—I've I, always talked about it in both my research and the work I do with women in work, and how do you make 
work be meaningful? There's this visible, visible marginalization that we are able to see, like a woman who's in a rural area is living in a patriarchal setup. I mean, at this point, who is not living in a patriarchal setup? You know, if nothing else, <laughs> at least for those of us, you know, who've tried to say, don't look at an Indian woman and say, oh, you must have been marginalized. No, you've been marginalized too. I always feel like there's a me too component and there's a you too component. And I think this is this has become uh, a place where we are seeing, you know, the celebrity culture or where you look at women who are ho- holding these positions of power. For example, Priya Ramani and her exchange with MJ Akbar or a couple of people who were equally powerful journalists who are now actually, you know, they have been held accountable. They've lost their cases. They're all suing their victims. But this visible empowerment and vis- visible uh, vulnerability, I think that has been turned on its head because we used to think that, you know, she's a television actress, she's a film star like Tanushree Datta and her argument and her whole history of how she's been brave enough to bring this out. Comedians who, you know, make a living out of talking about how uh, men are not behaving well and then it turns out they are sexual predators. I think that has been the biggest highlight that there is a YouTube component to this. Women who look empowered or women who look marginalized, that's just a look. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And now the woman, just to detail this a little bit for the people who might not know, MJ Akbar, this prominent politician and journalist, he got accused by a woman who, and and then he he decided to sue her. He decided, you are defaming me. And 10 other women have have come up with accusations against him. Uh, His case is probably not, including the the woman from uh, National Public Radio, the business editor at National Public Radio. And there's, uh, his case does not look good, but there's a lot of still um, resistance to this accountability kind of A lot of resistance. It's basically, uh, you know, in mainstream media especially has been extremely supportive. This is exactly how they were when the Nirbhaya case or the Jyoti Singh rape case had happened. That's when actually the common people came out on the streets to protest that this kind of public unsafety happened to a 23-year-old who was brutalized and she died. And so we had the Nirbhaya Act happen, which was the modification of the 354 section of the IPC, which prevents um, sexual harassment and rape, etc., but the mainstreaming of it, in Nirbhaya's case, I can say very convinced, I am also convinced because I was there at that time, that really women and men, because it's, it touched everybody. But right now, the fact is that the women who are protesting are in positions of power or have been. So there's this, you know, they are receiving this flack about why were you not quiet before? Why did you have to, etc. So I'm not sure whether we have managed to mainstream their complaints or taking away this whole thing about, oh, they're playing victims, which is really unfortunate because it really took probably a lot of strength for someone like these women, you know, the women we just talked about, to come out here. And the biggest the biggest step towards this has been the resignation of MJ Akbar. I think that has established India's credentials right now that the state, the Indian state means it when it says, you know, you cannot get away with this. I'm talking with Shweta Singh from Loyola University, and we're discussing what's happening with what we'll call the Me Too movement in India. And coming up after the break, I'm going to talk with a playwright who will share her story of a sexual assault in India and how she incorporated it into her work. Um, you know, this uh, MJ Akbar, the, 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 the accountability that's coming with him um, – the government, the BJP government, previously, when there have been instances uh, similar to this, they have um, they have not 
they have gone on the offensive. They have not. <laughs> they have not had their guy resign. It's it's a it's a yeah. that, that's a that's a sea change. That is a big change. I mean, just two years ago, there was the incident of stalking by someone who was affiliated with the political party, and and it's on both hands. Every political party, every year, in fact, in India, the legal feminism has been extremely active. So if you look at our laws, they're very progressive. But then at the implementation level, the woman who was being stalked, for example, in Chandigarh. If her father hadn't been an IAS officer, there is no way she would have survived complaining about this event. So it was surprising that uh, the minister had to resign. But I think that added a lot of support at the grassroots for people to feel that you cannot do this and get away so easily. I think they can still get away easily enough. But maybe there's a little bit of a margin that I think um, is going to make more women come out. Plus, there's the accountability piece of the global piece here. I think if the movement hadn't taken such a strong hold in the US, I don't think Me Too India would have happened. And um, what about Blasey Ford and her telling her story very prominently? I'm sure that had some kind of impact and ricochet effect too. Yeah, you know, the just... Being able to watch that happen, CNN is being, you know, all these uh, mainstream channels are being now also viewed in all of South Asia. Just being able to see that a woman who is so highly respected can come out and speak her truth in front of camera, in front of so many people, definitely it is empowering. I think the the reason feminism, the post-structuralist, post-colonial feminism is taking off is finally women are feeling that this is relevant to us in our work environment. And we have some of the same resources to get our story out. We don't have the same accountability. There is no, there is no guarantees, you know, of what will happen. It's all dependent on who is holding the person accountable, like in any work organization. But I do feel that just the visit of disempowered women who, if you look at them, look like they have all the privileges. I think that is bringing this huge change. And that was the case also with the Blasey Ford incident. The, um, at back to MJ Akbar, I was reading one of the accounts in Scroll from a woman who was accusing him. And she said, I would feel like I was uh, part of the cover-up if I didn't speak out about this. I've got to it, it was almost forcing women to uh to come out and, yeah. and say things. That that's a that's it's a, a new powerful thing. motivator. It's a new thing though because you know Terry uh Terry is this organization that works in environmental activism and has been very reputed for its research in Delhi. The vice chairman Mr. Pachori, Dr. Pachori, was uh, accused of sexual harassment by an intern who was like 25, 26 years old. And he didn't even get to resign his position. It was so apparent, you know, in terms of credibility, that intern was extremely credible. But yet her story was disregarded. And he didn't even have that much political clout. He was just a social, socially powerful person. He just resigned recently after Me Too India happened but not when the incident happened. And the woman who complained said she wrote an email to her boss and her boss said, you know, just get over it. <laughs> wow. The, um, some people are resigning really fast, though. Like the, the head of Walmart, uh, the Walmart venture in India, is resigned really quickly. Yeah, I think that is also because Walmart is a multinational franchisee. Yeah. I think he's being held accountable to more than just uh, the organizational work culture standards that would be maintained in just corporate India. Uh, like I said, I've worked with women who've been working with that Vishaka guideline, which is back in 96, 97. And 
it's a very rudimentary process of sexual harassment laws. You cannot stalk a person. You cannot do this. You cannot impose yourself on them. But then, you know, are you following the Vishaka guidelines in a middle range corporate? Maybe not. I think international people are more are held to different standards. What about the Bollywood uh, circumstances? Because there's been lots of accusations there and lots of people are in trouble. Uh, but then there's lots of people who are reacting kind of like they did in Hollywood. It's it's a very similar thing. It is. And, and I think that also shows what parallels we have. The social context, Jerome, of this whole thing is basically Bollywood and Hollywood have so many parallels. I think Bollywood has more in common and Bollywood stars have more in common with Hollywood stars uh, than we do. So, you know, just like here, a Meryl Streep can say, I don't know, Harvey Weinstein is like this. I mean, you know, in India, I, I would think 70 to 80 percent women are saying this and the women who are speaking up even now like women like Sonam Kapoor etc these are women who come from families which are safeguarding that they won't have to go through a me too experience so they are able to speak up because their power and privilege was intact it is these women like Tanushri Datta who have been outside this privilege of family and status who's speaking up I think is incredibly powerful and completely inspired by Hollywood and they're being able to speak up because their lifestyles, their identities, I think, have way more in common with Hollywood heroines than with maybe an average Indian woman. How do you read this going for the women who are saying in uh, in Bollywood, uh, well, we had no idea this was happening? I mean, you mentioned Sonan Kapoor, who is a part of a family of, of, of powerful uh, filmmakers. And she she did this, but then she backed down a little bit and said, "Well, may, may, maybe you know, yeah. all the women who are speaking up are completely right." And I, I, you know, all of this. It's it's it's. I think you know the, that whole identity piece. Are you going to own the privileges that you were born with, that obvious empowerment, or are you going to own the vulnerability that you were born with, just by the fact that you're a woman? You're a woman means that you are in a society like India, and apparently here too, really exposed to violence, and especially. Sexual sexual violence. You have to own it. Now, you might have more buffers preventing it from happening to you. But then if you are going to fall back on the family, then the family is not going to be okay with someone they have lunch and dinner with being one of the accused and your daughter standing up. And so I think that is the part of it where women don't feel comfortable. Also, there are so many women who haven't spoken up, who are super Bollywood stars, and they won't speak up because then you'll have to go back into the entire history of this you too were subjected to this outcome. You know, I think one of the missing links here, Jerome, I've always felt is why aren't we talking about how did you manage to cope with this entire thing for a majority part of your work culture? And, and what were the choices you had to make? I think that is a powerful conversation that our girls need to hear. You know, the new people joining work environment need to hear that this, you know, I made this choice of being quiet and look at what it has gotten me. Because what we see is that choice has led you to becoming a maybe a celebrity or having more power. But this is not power. This is absolute disempowerment. And you have to say, I'm accusing you now. But yes, I was not able to accuse you back then because I thought that I couldn't or something else was more important. It wasn't. Powerful idea. Shweta Singh is associate professor at Loyola University School of Social Work. She focuses on global feminism, South Asia, women in leadership, and diversity. Shweta hosts the WLUW radio show Global Desi World and Women Sundays at 2. Great talking with you about the Me Too in India. Thank you. 
Coming up after the break, I'll talk with a playwright who shares her story of sexual assault in India. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Manita Gandhi is an actress and playwright. Her one-person play, Motherland, is a dark comedy about having one foot in the U.S. and the other in India. She'll be doing it tomorrow night at Benedictine University from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. And in the course of Motherland, Manita reveals that she was sexually assaulted when she went to a yoga and meditation center in India for her brother's wedding. Thanks a lot for joining us, Manita Gandhi. Thank you for having me. You know, it's interesting to hear women tell their stories, and it seems like they are inspired by other people's stories to tell their stories. And obviously, the Christina Blasey Ford experience has inspired lots of women in India. You were inspired by Leslie Udwin in the documentary India's Daughter. It was about uh, gang rape and murder of Jody Singh a few years ago. I had her on the program. Um, it was a very powerful film. What was going on with you? Because it sounds like your play was not going to feature the sexual assault part. You, you were just doing a play about you. Yeah, I um, I went to India in 2009. So a lot of my play is based off of a trip in 09 where one of my brothers decided to get an arranged marriage. And then after the wedding, I had gone to this meditation retreat and that's where I was assaulted. It was the terrible Delhi gang rape that happened to Jyoti, where she died from the injuries that she sustained, happened in 2012. I started writing my play in about 2015, so I had to take some time to really heal from everything. And there were a lot of magical things that I wanted to write about that trip to India and about my life and about finding my father's suitcase from his very first trip to the U.S. when he came here for college. And when we were at the first table read... Coincidentally, it happened to be the week that Leslie Udwin's documentary, India's Daughter, was released. And if you can remember, the Indian government reacted to that by saying that it was illegal to show the film in the country because they thought it would defame the country. And right after we did the table read, I had some people on my creative team that knew what had happened to me in India at that point in the story and asked me about it. And, you know, I... I didn't put the assault in initially for a couple of reasons. One is there are so many things about India that I love. You know, people ask me about my relationship with India all the time, and I say it's complicated because there's a lot of things I love, but there's a lot of things that I feel challenged by. And one of the largest things I feel challenged by with my relationship to India is my relationship to the way sexual assault and rape are addressed and a lot of the gender norms that still exist in India. And I wanted to make sure in this play that I portrayed India as a whole and that people didn't just see India as a country that was full of rapists because that was some of the feedback that I was getting at the time about the country as a whole in regards to relationships with men and women. So that's what prevented me from putting it in there. And then when I heard that the documentary had been banned, I had a sudden revelation, which was that 
I don't want women to victim shame themselves or be victim shamed by anybody. And to a certain extent, me not feeling comfortable disclosing my assault made me realize that I was victim shaming myself, that I had these deep things embedded in me, you know, from society and from my family that said, if I talked about being a rape survivor, I would be labeled as a rape survivor for the rest of my life, that my family would be labeled a certain way, that I wouldn't be quote unquote marriage material. All these deep seated things still existed in me. And I think when I recognized that, I realized I had to put it in the play. So I first wrote out the assault in detail. I think it was a form of activism. I I just needed to get it out there. And then it ended up becoming a very clear and pivotal point for the entire story. And to what you're saying about how, you know, these conversations beget other conversations, it's unfortunate. But every single time I do my show, I always do a talk back after at least one person comes up to me to share their story. And many people will email me or get a hold of me after to share their story because they then feel comfortable having the conversation. Um, there are after show conversations that you have after Motherland and people, you know, almost always someone talks about being assaulted. Yeah, somebody almost always talks about being assaulted or someone that they know having gone through it. What was really interesting is when the Me Too movement came about again here, you know, in the U.S., it was last year while I was doing the world premiere of the show in Chicago. It was so interesting because in the talkbacks, all of a sudden there was a shift, whereas people would come up and talk to me more after about specific instances. All of a sudden, women were just saying, hey, this happened to me in front of everybody in the room. And I thought that was pretty incredible. What have you learned from doing that? From doing the talk back in particular? Yeah. You know, from doing the talk back, I think the main thing I've learned is people need an inciting incident. People need someone to have the conversation in order to be free to have the discussion that they are nervous to talk about. And whether that's something about being multi-generational or whether that's about I was assaulted and I don't know how to talk about it or whether it's, hey, I actually put someone in an uncomfortable situation and I wasn't able to see that I did that, but now I recognize that that's what that is. I think what I've really learned is people need that spark. And uh, what I learned is stories, for me, theater, you know, telling that story is that spark. And I think we're seeing that with all of the testimonies that are coming forward now in our society You know, I think when Dr. Ford delivered her testimony, I was, I'll never forget that day for many reasons. Uh, I was doing a West Coast premiere of my show at PCPA Theater Fest out in the Central Coast. It was the day I was first rehearsing the assault. And that morning is when Dr. Ford did her testimony. And I think we were all so shaken by it. There's a scene in my play, which is a scene out of my life where after the assault, I still hadn't showered and... It was almost 48 hours later after the assault, I was in a temple because the meditation center that I was assaulted at was attached to one of the largest Hindu temples in the country. So filing a complaint is like filing a complaint against the Catholic Church. My father was terrified that we would be killed or hurt if I filed a complaint, but I I wanted to do it anyways. And I got put in a room with 10 men from the temple. They were heads of the temple. 
And there was one woman in the room with me who I had befriended at the meditation center who helped me. And she sat, they had two chairs in the center of the room that we sat in. They brought the doctor who assaulted me into the room. And I sat there and he spoke quickly in Gujarati, which is um, the language that I was raised with, basically saying I was an American actress that I called him over to my room at night and he refused and went home to his wife thinking I didn't understand. And then I had to stand up and and speak slowly to them in Gujarati to let them know I understood the language and that I wanted the truth out. And when I watched Dr. Ford's testimony, and obviously she was in front of so many people and all these reporters, it was, but it, it, I mean, the hairs on my body stood up because it reminded me exactly of being in that situation. And I remembered that, um, that day. And then the day that Kavanaugh got sworn in was our opening night and uh it felt it um it felt really strange and awful in a way to be doing the show because after all of this work and momentum when things like this happen politically of course it feels personal and of course it feels like oh even though everybody has spoken up and even though more people are speaking up is there a change that's really going to happen but i think in doing the show that night a lot of people remarked upon how that particular scene reminded them of Dr. Ford's testimony, which was, you know, because it's so present for all of us. I'm talking with Manita Gandhi. She's an actress and playwright. We're discussing her one-person play, Motherland, and it'll be tomorrow night at Benedictine University at 7 o'clock. And in the course of Motherland, Manita reveals she was sexually assaulted when she was went to a yoga meditation center in India for her brother's wedding. Um, I, you have been on social media and talked about um, the way um, – women are telling their stories and when they're ready to tell their stories. I mean, it happens in a way that is um, not necessarily linear. What kind of uh, thoughts and advice have you put out there about this? So in terms of women being able to be ready to tell their story, I think there's a few things. You know, I can only speak from my personal experience. I used to do a lot of work with a company in Chicago teaching children about sexual abuse prevention. And I worked with the rape victims advocates out in Chicago when I was here. Even with all of that, after I was assaulted, when I came back to the U.S., I had a certain amount of PTSD that I wasn't expecting. And something that I really learned is there's a few things that are really important in terms of healing from something like this. One is I think seeking professional help is extremely important when we're assaulted, there's so many layers of us that are affected. It's not just physical and on our body. It's not those bruises that are being healed or that need to be healed. A lot of it's internal too, because it's a direct violation. And for many of us, it's somebody that we know. It's not always somebody jumping out of a bush, a stranger that attacks us. It's often a huge violation of trust from somebody in a position of power. So for example, for me, it was a man that ran a yoga meditation center. He was my yoga teacher in the morning. He was the physician on site. His wife was the other physician on site. I had played with their son during the days and he was the one who came to my room. Uh, for some people, it's a family member or a friend. So I think the first thing I'd say is because there were such deep violations at so many levels, seeking professional help is extremely important. 
it can feel scary. So if you can enlist a friend or someone to go with you, that is so important. The other thing I will say, and people point this out to me when I do my show is, you know, my parents, when I told them, they believed me. They didn't question whether or not it had happened. And it took me a while to realize how special and important that was. I didn't have to go through telling seven different people this happened to me for people to say, oh, you know, oh, I believe you. So the most important thing that we can do as a society, even if you have all of the questions in your mind of how did this happen and how did you do, you know, put yourself in the situation, please, I encourage you not to ask those questions to a survivor, but to just say, I hear you, I believe you, and then listen to them and then get them to somebody who can help them in a greater way, somebody professional. There's a lot of power and a lot of healing when people just believe you. In terms of being ready to tell your story, I think that is so personal and individual. You might be able to tell a couple of people you might not be able to tell anyone but someone professional. For me, it happened in 09, and I was able to start talking about it a little bit to people I was close to when I got back. But for me to actually write this play and then to publicly share the story, because once you publicly share something, you're going to have to deal with a lot because everybody is going to have views and everybody is going to have opinions. I asked myself when I was writing the play, because it was really hard when I wrote out the details of the assault, am I ready to tell this story? And it's okay if I'm not. And I knew that I was ready to share it. And then once I did share it, I knew that I had to continue sharing it because there was an immense amount of healing that happened. That being said, there are questions and emails that I get all the time. I remember there was an older gentleman and he began an email with, I know I'm an older white man. And so I was prepping myself right there for what is he going to say? But he said, you know, you portrayed an intelligent woman and pardon me if this is your life, but I don't understand why an intelligent woman would open the door to her room at 10 o'clock at night and put herself in a position of danger. And I remember it really struck me because that was probably the biggest part of my healing process was as a survivor, you blame yourself. You're always asking yourself, how did I put myself in this position? What For me, it was, why did I open that door even though I had the instinct that it was late and I felt a little uncomfortable? And the reason that I put it in the play is because that's how it happens for a lot of us. Even though I had an instinct that said, oh, it's late and it's strange that the doctor's at my door, I put aside that instinct because the spiritual lecture that morning had been about how fear lives in the mind. And he was my doctor and my yoga teacher. And so I opened the door. Um, and I think that's how it happens for a lot of us. So in terms of advice for women, I would say, tell your story where you feel safe telling your story. And know that when you do share your story, you're being brave, and you're being powerful, and you're actually gifting somebody else with the power to tell their story. But it's okay if you're not ready to do it. You have to honor that. 
Manita Gandhi is an actress and playwright. Her one-person play, Motherland, is a dark comedy about having one foot in the U.S. and the other in India. You can see her tomorrow night at Benedictine University at 7 o'clock. And in the course of Motherland, Manita reveals she was sexually assaulted when she went to a yoga meditation center in India. And we've talked all about the serious stuff, but I've seen clips, and there's a lot of funny bits. You play all sorts of characters. You're your mom and going back and forth, and, and there's fun stuff. There is. You know, I call it a dark comedy. I'd say the play is actually 85% a comedy where you will laugh out loud. There's a lot of great stories. You know, I, and I spent a lot of time interviewing my parents to get to know them as people and going over some of the coming of age stories I I had. And, um, you know, originally a lot of people didn't even know the assault was part of the play, which was I think a really beautiful way to experience the show. But a lot of it is coming of age experiences and you know, figuring out sex and identity and sexuality and, you know, stories about the when my mom found my vibrator and how we navigated that as a family. So there's a, a lot of humor. And I think there's a lot of really touching points in the story, too. I feel really grateful that, you know, I happened to stumble across my father's suitcase in their basement while I was working on the show. And it had J.J. Gandhi printed on the front. And when I turned it over, he had written, when I die, discard this bag if you like, until then it stays. And it was so dramatic. And that was a big turning point because I realized there was a lot about my dad that I didn't know. And I think um, my dad and my mom are two of everybody's favorite characters in the show. And I think if you've never seen a solo show too, it's pretty fun to watch one person play so many people and to be transported to so many places. And so it's a bit of an adventure. Manita Gandhi, thanks a lot for joining us. Motherland is tomorrow night at Benedictine University. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll find out about a new photography exhibit that features women from the West African country of Togo. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Togo is a sliver of a country wedged between Ghana and Benin. 70% of people in Togo don't have access to adequate health care. Photographer Zoe Rain was there earlier this year. She took portraits of people coming to health care facilities, and her exhibit, Women of Togo, opens tomorrow night at the Artworks Project Studio Gallery in River North. And it's great to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could tell us about um, coming to this project, because your photography is um, mostly people involved in the music industry, people mm -hmm. like Macklemore and Chance the Rapper. How did you get to go, go to Togo and take pictures? Yeah, um, I think being in the music industry, there is such a um, theme of photojournalism and kind of documenting people in their experience and really being a fly on the wall. Um, so I've always been really good at, at seeing things and kind of just 
presenting them as they are. Um, so I, it's been um, a blessing to kind of be able to shoot some things that are a little bit less, um, you know, urban and and uh, close to home. Um, so you've I, done journalism projects at Cook County Jail and other places. Yeah, that was a recent one, which was really exciting as well. Um, but um, Construction for Change was started by Ryan Lewis's uh, mother, um, so that's how I kind of got involved with them. Explain what Construction for Change is. So they started a project um, just trying to construct um, infrastructure, whether it's health clinics or schools or um, you know being able to come into communities and uh, really not only not just come in and build something and dip out and say, you know, here you go, hope it, you know, runs smoothly, but actually integrating the community into, um, you know, the construction and being able to kind of create a cohesive ecos- ecosystem that, you know, they can leave and, and the community can continue to uh, upkeep and, and run. Um, and actually a year before this project, I went to Cambodia and um, we went to a school that they had completely redone um, and it was from, you know, dirt floors to and these huts to these gorgeous concrete buildings and, and seeing kind of how that affected this entire community. It was really exciting. How did you and so you ended up going to Togo with Construction for mm-hmm. Change and meeting people who were involved in a, in a healthcare uh, facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so Togo, they we went to we visited five clinics. Um, some had st- yet to be. Uh, constructed on, and some had been, you know, already re- refurbished, and so I was kind of able to see the the drastic uh, change from, you know, what what was and what what it becomes after, you know, construction for change and integrate health was able to come in and help. Who were some of the people that you took pictures of? You, I mean, when you went to your um, photography website, and you've got men and women, lots of people. Um, this photographic exhibit at Artworks Gallery Project um, is uh, women, women of Togo. Uh, how did you choose who they were? Yeah, um, well, we actually would kind of tour these clinics, and if I had a you know, spare time, I would just set up uh, basically a tiny little photo studio type setup outside of the clinics and almost just kind of usher people in, get them in a line. Um, we had a lot of we had a lot of kids that really were excited to be in it, so it was just whoever got in front of the camera next got their photo taken, um, as well as kind of finding mothers and daughters, which is my favorite part of the the whole exhibit, and kind of having seeing you know that how how similar they look, and really you can really just tell that like this is this is that that mom's baby. It's so exciting. Did you have a, is there a smiling etiquette in Togo? I've been places where there is. Um, in Pakistan, people do not smile for the mm-hmm. camera generally. They just don't. Yeah. No, uh, very similar in Togo. Um, and I think a lot of people have not even had their photo taken. Um, and so it was, I don't think there's any f- smiles. There might be a few. Because I, I was going to say, your, your photos don't have a lot of smiles yeah. in them. We, 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 all the Americans get just get smile right up when right. they see the camera. But Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's some where there's you can see the smile through people's eyes, which is really exciting. But generally, it was kind of you know they just stand and kind of have a blank face. Um, it's kind of perfect, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. you get a more window into the human. Yeah, it than, feels it feels more powerful for the... some reason, for sure. They're not they're not putting on a on a face to you know for people on Facebook or you know there's no there's nothing um, inauthentic. I'm talking with Zoe Rain, and we're talking about some of her photos. Uh, Women of Togo, there's an opening tomorrow night at Artworks Project Studio Gallery on Kingsbury Street. And as we mentioned, she was there um, talking and finding out about health care 
in uh, Togo and on the line with us, we have Claire Qureshi. She's vice president for frontline delivery for the office of the UN Special Envoy for Health. And thanks for joining us, Claire. Hi, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to be on um, and just feel so fortunate to be able to partner with uh, such a talented artist as, as Bill Rain. Now, the um, uh, healthcare, I said in a statistic at the top, um, 70% of people in Togo don't have access to adequate mm-hmm. healthcare. Um, what are the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tremendously sad and, and challenging. I mean, you see maternal and child mortality rates. Um, just far beyond what's imaginable in the U.S. Um, you know, thankfully, with the Integrate Health model and, and similar models by many partners, you see those mortality rates um, really cut in half um, in some cases, which is which is incredible if you think about it at a human level. Um, but it just means that, you know, moms are not able to deliver babies in safe ways. It means that, you know, children are dying of things like pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria um, that we wouldn't even conceive of in the U.S. Um, and it's you know, strikes at a human level, at a village level, and at a country level. And so the integrated healthcare all people need is really just basic preventative healthcare, and they, and the children who are uh, young and uh, dying, they, they don't die. Yeah, I mean, it's what's incredible is it's really a, you know, a replicable model, and it has four important parts. I mean, one is community health workers. So these are outreach workers, frontline care providers, um, mostly women, which is pretty cool, um, recruited from the communities that they serve. Uh, They're trained, they're equipped, they're supervised, they're salaried, and they're fiercely passionate. I mean, that's the incredible thing. It's their passion to serve their communities, extending the reach of the clinic um, out to those who need it most. The second part is waiving user fees. Um, It doesn't sound like, you know, a lot, but $40 for a delivery is, is out of reach for a farmer who's making $2 a day. Um, but by getting rid of those waiver fees, uh, user fees, that means that, you know, someone can actually have their, their birth in a clinic setting. The third is building clinical capacities. That means making sure that nurses have the skills they need to provide emergency obstetric care. Um, and the fourth is supply chain infrastructure. And that means that, you know, medicines and um, diagnostic equipment is getting to where it needs to be at the right time. Um, so those four pieces, you know, in, in the Integrate Health model are replicable. They only cost about $10 per person per year, and it can help achieve universal health coverage. Does some of that resonate with you, Zoe? Does the, uh, the things that we're hearing about, no fees, and the people who are coming, they, I imagine they some of them look like they were not fee-paying folk. Um, absolutely. I mean, it, there was such a um, almost stigma of, of going to the doctor because of, you know, not being able to afford it or not, you know, having faith in um, clinics that were there. I mean, there's mold, black mold and, and um, not no running water. I mean, it was almost like, what's the point of even coming to these clinics? You know, I'm paying this money and there's not even a, a pharmacy stocked with healthcare supplies. Um, and I think really kind of rebuilding that trust within the community and having a um, health workers coming and checking in on women and making sure that they're um, aware that, you know, they can get this help and they really need to be kind of having this prenatal care beforehand um, was something that was a big, big impact right off the bat. And the, the statistics on Togo in particular, Claire, are, are not mm-hmm. fantastic. They rank really low on for, um, for children and for women's mortality. Yeah, I mean, one in 10 child children are dying before their fifth birthday. I mean, it's hard to even imagine that. But, you know, 10 little kids, you know, one not making it. I have, my kids are three and a half and eight months old. 
Um, so I think a lot about just what that would mean for, you know, my own community. Um, and then 370 women are dying per 100,000 live births, which, you know, just to give you a sense, I mean, U.S. is only a few, and, and we're actually one of the worst performers among developed countries on on uh, maternal mortality. So this is a country that is, has really a, uh, a challenged health system with tremendously poor health outcomes, some of the worst in West Africa, um, and needs a lot of support to build a strong health system. And, you know, community health and, and outreach workers and, and strong uh, clinical care are absolutely essential for that. Are there examples of countries that have done well with this approach and um, made a transformation that uh, included the government? I imagine the government eventually yeah. has to take over health care and has to do it. Yeah, two two good examples come to mind. One is Ethiopia, which has been really a, a pioneer in using community health outreach workers, um, thanks to some fantastic uh, government leadership in particular, um, including with Dr. Tedros, who's now the head of the World Health Organization. But they've seen infant and, and maternal mortality rates just come down tremendously with big thanks to outreach workers. And the other one actually closer to Togo is uh, is uh, Liberia and the work that Last Mile Health has done. So Dr. Raj Punjabi has led that. But um, Last Mile Health in partnership with President Sirleaf, especially after the Ebola epidemic, built a really strong health system You know that relies heavily on community health workers um, and have seen their mortality rates um, from things like malaria and diarrhea and pneumonia just, just drop precipitously. So it gives us real encouragement. This, this model of using a strong community health system can show incredible results. And how is the government uh, in Togo doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough political situation. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of instability, but um, Integrate Health has, has developed a strong partnership both at the political level as well as with sort of civil servants and, and also just built great capacity among um, the, the healthcare system and leaders locally in the northern part of Togo where, where they work. Um, so it's not the easiest place, but, um, but you know, there's some tremendously passionate uh, civil servants and health leaders and Integrate Health has gone out of their way to build a strong partnership that, that uh, you know, is, is really respectful with the government there. Are there other places you look at and think they could benefit from this same kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly across parts of West and East Africa, and there's there's actually, you know, just, um, a, a, you know, it's a moment of great sort of interest in the community health model. So you're seeing everywhere from Sierra Leone and Liberia and, and Ghana looking seriously at, at community health models uh, to Malawi and, and Kenya and, and Tanzania and Rwanda and East Africa. Everyone's really experimenting with the community health uh, worker model and in different ways that fit their own health dynamics. Um, and, and, you know, some countries doing better or worse on some of these health outcomes, but all saying we need strong, resilient health systems to achieve universal health coverage and really prepare our population for you know, the current health threats, as well as things like chronic diseases. Um, and by the way, you know, community health workers are now becoming increasingly interesting in the U.S., and there's a resurgence in, in kind of interest in community health workers and community health models here to battle everything from chronic disease to things like the opioid epidemic um, and using these folks as first responders as well as members of the community that can help, you know, change behavior and, and help people over the long term. You're with the UN Special Envoy for Health. Um, what what does the office do? What do, what how do you end up f- helping foster these kind of situations? Yeah, well, I have to I have to make one. As of about a week ago, uh, UN Special Envoy Ray Chambers, uh, actually a few weeks ago, 
Um, his title was actually changed to WHO Ambassador for Global Strategy. So another long and complicated uh, <laughs> title, but, but basically a similar role of being a, an advocate and a steward and a philanthropist uh, for, for community health and for global health um, and for working with, with uh, all the, the leading institutions. But we work as a convener, a catalyst, a facilitator, um, and my team in particular focuses on frontline delivery and community health. Um, so working with, with all the big partners from the UN agencies to big uh, multilaterals to um, in-country partners and to the ministries of health and finance and being the convener and the connector. Claire Qureshi is the vice president for frontline delivery for the office of what? The World Health Organization? <laughs> WHO Ambassador for Global Strategy. The WHO Ambassador for Global Strategy. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, community health care in Togo and around the world. And photographer Zoe Rain is here, and your exhibit opens uh, tomorrow night at the Artworks Project Studio Gallery, 325 North Kingsbury Street. How many pieces is it? Um, I think it's about 35 or 40. And you've got a video component as well? Yeah, so there will be a running video as well in the in the galley. And you're going to give a little talk tomorrow night? I think so, yeah. 6 p.m. at the Artworks Project Studio Gallery, 625 North Kingsbury Street, Women of Togo, and it'll be there for a few months, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yep. Terrific. Thanks very much for joining us, photographer Zoe Rain. Thank you so much. This has been Worldview on WBEZ. Tomorrow on the program, I am going to chat with the former longtime director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. He's part of an interfaith delegation to the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh. Also, we are going to talk with the UK Trade Commissioner about Brexit. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.